As we continue this morning in our trek through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to jump ahead briefly before we look at where we are this morning in Matthew chapter 4. But I want you to recall in your minds the last petition of the Lord's Prayer for just a moment, the model prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. It goes like this, "...lead us not into temptation." but deliver us from the evil one. If Jesus instructs us to ask our Heavenly Father not to lead us into temptation, does that mean there may be times where our loving Heavenly Father does, in fact, lead us into temptation? When you pray that prayer, do you think that your Father might ever say no to that request? Our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 4 shows us that God does indeed lead His Son, Jesus, into temptation. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, you'll see the first words of the chapter saying that very thing. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus' experience was that the Spirit of God led him to a place where he would be tempted by the devil. That's what the text plainly says. That last petition of the model prayer uses the same phraseology as Jesus wants to acknowledge the reality that our Heavenly Father may lead us into places where we can be tempted. Matthew has worded this ever so precisely. Led by the Spirit tempted by the devil. In saying it just this way, he makes two things really clear. First, God is not the source of temptation, so he cannot be blamed for our sin in response to temptation. And second, the devil does not have the power to act independently of God. It's helpful at this point to remember that the word translated temptation or tempt in the New Testament also gets translated as testing or test sometimes. The title of the sermon this morning seeks to draw that out, the testing of God's Son. Testing is a good thing. Testing is an opportunity to demonstrate obedience. Testing is something that God does for His people, for our benefit, for our good. Since the word itself can be used to describe tempting to evil and also testing for a good purpose, we need to recognize that every occasion of temptation is an opportunity intended by God for obedience. Every temptation we face, no matter where it comes from, is an opportunity to to be obedient to God. And so here, the Spirit of God leads the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy of God. And at the same time, the Father is testing His Son in a very fitting and appropriate way, giving Him an opportunity to demonstrate His identity as the Son. The focus of these temptations is on Jesus' identity. Who are you, Jesus? Are you the Son of God? What does it mean for you to be the Son of God? Will you live out your sonship better? than all the other sons of God from the Old Testament. 
Recall from last week that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John. And as he came up out of the water, a voice from heaven spoke aloud. As we saw in Matthew 3.17, God the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That affirmation from his eternal Father is the focus of the devil's temptations. The devil is basically going to be saying, You just got this affirmation from your Father that you are his beloved Son. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? So Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at those verses together. Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So... That sets the stage for this encounter, this conflict that Jesus is going to experience with the aggressor, the enemy, the devil. We need to remember what Matthew's doing here as he tells the story. As he's highlighting Jesus' identity as God's son, one of the things he's doing is showing how Jesus embodies the nation of Israel as God's son. The nation of Israel was called God's son in the Old Testament. And so now Jesus is actually living out their history in his own experience. Jesus is again playing the part of the nation of Israel. His 40 days and 40 nights in, of fasting in the wilderness depicts Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus will quote three passages from Deuteronomy. And these three passages hearken back to the Exodus story so that the three temptations of Jesus line up with three tests the nation of Israel experienced in the wilderness. The manna in Exodus 16, the water in Exodus 17, and the golden calf in Exodus 32. So Jesus is consciously drawing on that storyline, and he's repeating their experience in the wilderness, but where Israel failed in their tests to demonstrate their sonship, Jesus will succeed. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Moses reminded the people that Yahweh had humbled Israel and caused them to hunger, testing them to see whether they would obey. Whereas God subjected the nation of Israel to hunger, here Jesus volunteers to experience hunger. This hunger becomes the opportunity the devil seeks to exploit. Now, if you're looking at your sermon outline, you can see that I've sketched out this encounter almost like a boxing match. And so we're going to have three rounds between Jesus and the devil here. So we enter round one in verses three and four. In the, each of these rounds, we're going to see that these temptations has some aspect that the, of Jesus' identity and mission in focus. In this first round, the devil is wanting to highlight and attack the rights of God's Son. The rights of God's Son. And we'll see how Jesus repels each attack using Scripture. Let's look at round one in verses three and four. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil is not questioning here whether Jesus is God's son. He's not even seeking to get Jesus to prove that he's God's son. Rather, he's saying, show me what kind of son you are. The devil is attempting to manipulate Jesus here, intending to get him to act as a bad son, an unfaithful son. That's the tempter's goal. He's saying God's son has the right to eat. God's son even has the power to create his own food. So satisfy your hunger. A temptation related to hunger really gets to the core of who we are as human beings, doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with eating when we're hungry, is there? But how we satisfy our hunger can actually reveal who we trust. When our kids are little, they cry to indicate their hunger. And we parents respond by providing them with food appropriate to their age. I can remember Eliana, before she could talk, would grab my finger and lead me to the pantry and point up to the snack that she wanted whenever she was hungry. Now, she's able to use her words, though sometimes she's big enough now to go to the refrigerator herself and climb up inside and attempt to get whatever she wants. Now, at one level, I want her to have that kind of independence, but at the same time, I want her to maintain a trust in her parents to provide what she needs when she needs it. And I want her to understand when we might say, no, you don't need a snack right now. The nation of Israel failed in just this area. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which explains the lesson Israel was supposed to learn from their hunger in the wilderness. We often allow our circumstances to push out and push us away from trusting God, don't we? But all of our circumstances are opportunities for trusting God. Trusting what God has said in particular. For the nation of Israel, God had promised to provide for them in the wilderness. They didn't believe him. They didn't trust their father. Jesus does. One writer illuminates Jesus' point really well here. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and says, In effect, bread is not sufficient. I am dependent on my Father and His Word, not on bread. I live out of His hand. I do not want bread if my Father does not want to give it to me. Jesus picks up this verse not merely as a timeless principle. Instead, He's saying this was the lesson Israel was supposed to learn in their hunger in the wilderness. I understand the lesson, and I will trust what God has said. At the same time, there is a timeless principle. God's Word sustains our life even more than food. But that's really not the point. God had spoken to Israel. He had promised to provide for them, and that promise included bread or food. But Moses was explaining to them that the bread was not the end not the goal. The bread was not what they needed to focus on. Instead, they needed to focus on what God had said. Confident that God would come through. 
these temptations, as much as they are directed at God's Son, really end up being tests of God's faithfulness in the father-son relationship. Is the father going to do what he said he's going to do? Jesus goes to this verse, goes back to what God had said in Scripture. Pay close attention to that. Jesus goes back to what God had said in Scripture. He's not expecting or depending on any new revelation or conversations that he, had, he might have had with his father personally. He's going back to what God has said in Scripture. It is written. In the Scriptures, Jesus had everything he needed from his father to resist temptation and to remain faithful in every situation he'd face in his life. Even the audible voice from heaven he'd just heard 40 days before is not what he appeals to here. He goes back to what his father has said to him in Scripture. This is the model for us. As a recent book title proclaims, God doesn't whisper. Jesus didn't expect or need internal promptings circumstantial signs, dreams, visions, or audible voices to guide his day-to-day decision-making. We commonly use the language of feeling led to do certain things, not realizing that the Bible never, not even once, describes or endorses this kind of method for discerning God's will or figuring out what God wants us to do in a particular situation. No biblical character is ever described having this kind of experience in terms of feeling led by some inner prompting that is supposedly the voice of God. Search the scriptures. You won't find it anywhere. Where did this common way of speaking, this form of Christian ease, come from? Well, we all have experiences of having a feeling and then acting on that feeling and everything turns out well. (laughs) And then we have a tendency to interpret that feeling as though it were the voice of God. We look back at that feeling and say, well, God must have told me. That feeling that I got must have been God telling me what to do, produced by the Holy Spirit within us. And then on top of our own experience, we have many Bible teachers on the radio and in popular books and on the internet telling us that These experiences are normal, and they'll even cherry-pick Bible verses from the Scriptures out of their contexts to convince us that this is the secret to their very intimate relationship with the Lord. And if only we could follow their six steps to hearing God's voice, we could be close to God like they are. And the... uh, I want you to understand, Jesus... And the apostles did not teach us this. I've often quoted Martin Luther's words from the final sermon he ever preached, right before he died. He said, If anyone would hear God speak, let him read sacred scripture. This reflects Jesus' practice right here. This more accurately reflects the Bible's teaching. But I, I like a modern day version of this saying a little bit better. A fellow by the name of Justin Peters says, Want to hear God speak to you? Read your Bible. 
Want to hear God speak audibly? Read it out loud. If you, if you struggle in this area, or if you find yourself having these feelings, these promptings, and you are quick to jump to concluding that this must be the Spirit telling me what to do, that's your common experience. Or on the other side of it, if you, if you find yourself thinking that you can't seem to make a decision, that you're paralyzed until the Lord gives you some circumstantial sign, then I highly encourage you to read Jim Osman's book, God Doesn't Whisper. Our men's prayer groups have read and discussed this book, and I think they benefited from it. You'd have to ask each of them. And I think it's something that most Christians would benefit from reading. Jesus finds all he needs and combats every strategy of the devil with the Scriptures. The Scriptures guide Jesus' life at every step, shaping his identity and guiding his choices. Jesus knows he is God's Son from the Scriptures. God's voice from heaven confirmed that to him using Scripture. The Father's words, spoken audibly while Jesus was standing in the Jordan River, were drawn from two passages of Old Testament Scripture. Psalm 2-7, This is my beloved Son, and Isaiah 42-1, With whom I am well pleased. Thus Jesus here doesn't argue for his sonship with the devil. The devil's words don't push Jesus to doubt his relationship with his Father. Instead, he responds with what is appropriate, what is fitting for the Son of God in the context of hunger. He would trust his Father to provide food whenever and in whatever form he chooses. As the Son of God, he has the right to eat, and he has the power to transform stones into bread. But he is the kind of faithful son who seeks to actively, continuously depend on his father's provision and not provide for himself. So that's the end of round one. Jesus doesn't give in and claim or demand his rights. He quotes scripture and he trusts what his father has said to him in the scriptures. Let's see how round two unfolds where the protection of God's Son is the focus of the devil's attack. The protection of God's Son. Look at verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil seems to be saying here, fathers protect their sons. The Bible even says so. Let's provide an opportunity for you to enjoy your father's protective care. The devil transports Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. Most folks think this transportation is a visionary experience, and I suppose that's possible, but I think it's more likely a real physical transportation. That's what would make the temptation so powerful. Danger in a vision or a dream isn't real danger. And the location at the temple might add weight to the hope for protection, 
because the temple was the place where God was believed to be present in a special way. So basically, think about it like this. It's as though a naughty older brother took his little brother into their father's workshop where his father was working and said, why don't you climb up on that ladder and jump off? Daddy will catch you. The devil's second temptation is more aggressive than the first. He again attempts to command Jesus' behavior. He commands a leap of faith. As I was reflecting on this passage, I suddenly became much more uncomfortable with that phrase, leap of faith. I think this might be the actual origin of that idea. Taking a leap of faith is a demonic idea. True faith, biblical faith, is not like that. It's not taking a leap of faith. Recognizing Jesus' reliance on Scripture, the devil opens his Bible to offer some words of encouragement. He quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12, which promises to the one who trusts God that God will send angels to protect him from harm. Certainly, this would apply to the Son of God. However, it's clear in Psalm 91 that God's promise to send angels to protect is for times when danger threatens from the outside. The devil is here commanding Jesus to create a situation of danger, to intentionally put himself in harm's way. Throw yourself down. Now, at this point, I want to pause for some dramatic tension. Pretend you don't know the rest of the story. How would you expect Jesus to respond? I might have expected him to correct the devil's use of Psalm 91, the way I just pointed out that he's misapplied and taken the promise out of its context. Or I might have expected him to point to the very next verse in Psalm 91. You see, the devil has quoted a very dangerous passage of Scripture, dangerous for himself. Because the very next verse, Psalm 91, 13, promises the one who trusts God, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. The devil's first physical form, as far as we know, was that of a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And God cursed the serpent and the devil animating it, and he promised that a descendant of Eve would bruise his head. Victory over the serpent was announced right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and the psalmist is picking up on that promise. I might have expected Jesus to quote that next verse and say, Oh, devil, it is you who are the threat and you who are the danger from which humanity must be delivered. My Father will protect me from your attacks, and He will give me victory over you. But of course, Jesus does something yet more brilliant. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Jesus is pitting Scripture against Scripture, trumping the devil's verse with a different one. But that's not what's happening. Jesus is, in fact, calling out the devil's misuse of Scripture. Sometimes we look at this story as a model of how memorizing and quoting Scripture fends off temptation. And there is some truth to that. But don't miss the bigger point. Jesus resists the devil's temptation here because he reads the Bible more faithfully than the devil does. He is a better exegete than the devil. Quoting isolated verses 
doesn't carry power. As though Bible verses could be waved like a magic wand to make the devil go away. Instead, Jesus is here teaching and modeling for us how to read verses in their larger context, to compare Scripture with Scripture. Rightly handling the word of truth is the key to resisting temptation and growing in godliness. Very often we find ourselves tempted to sin, tempted to unbelief, and we quote verses we've memorized. But do you think that if we use Scripture the way the devil uses Scripture, we will have much success. Jesus shows us that the devil has misapplied Psalm 91. Psalm 91 cannot support behavior that puts God to the test. That creates a dangerous situation to see whether God really will send the angels. Because Scripture is clear that humans must not put God to the test. In Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses was reminding the people of how they did, in fact, put the Lord to the test at Massah. That was Exodus 17. They came to a place where there was no water, so the people rose up and griped at Moses and demanded that he provide water for them. Moses recognized this behavior as testing the Lord. They were questioning whether God was present with them. Like ungrateful, untrusting children, they whined and griped and fussed. Like a loving father, God provided for them anyway. But Jesus will not repeat this demanding attitude. Jesus refuses to create a situation that would demand his father must act in any way. Instead, as in the previous temptation, Jesus simply trusts what his father has said to him in Scripture. That's the key. And thus ends round two. In round three, the final round, we find the devil focusing on the authority of God's Son. The authority of God's Son. Look at verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. With this third temptation, the devil throws out all pretense. He abandons subtlety and goes for an aggressive head-on assault. He transports Jesus from the temple to a very high mountain and provides a visionary experience. There is no mountain in the world where a person could stand and literally see all the kingdoms of the world. The devil is somehow mediating a vision of some kind to Jesus. He's painting a picture for him. Notice that he doesn't here mention Jesus' sonship. Instead, he goes to the fulfillment of Jesus' mission the authority that God has promised to him. Think back to Jesus' baptism again. When the heavenly voice said, This is my beloved Son, he was drawing on the language of Psalm 2, where God also promises to his Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is the Messiah's destiny. That is what God has promised to his Son. 
The devil essentially paints a picture of what that inheritance could look like. And then he offers it to him now. But there is deception here too. The devil doesn't give Jesus a true picture of the inheritance his father has promised to him. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory are currently full of sin. That's all the devil can really show and offer to Jesus. And if Jesus accepts all the kingdoms and their glory now, then he would only be receiving an utterly sinful collection of sinful human kingdoms with a flawed, limited, and stained glory. The promise of the nations doesn't look like that. That's not what the, prom- the Father has promised to Jesus. The promise of the nations meant that the nations would come to worship and follow their Messiah because He has taken away their sins. The devil is offering the kingdoms of their world to their rightful ruler, the Messiah, but he's attempting to lead the Messiah away from his mission of healing and forgiving the nations. Jesus must hang on to the other aspect of his identity that the voice from heaven proclaimed at his baptism. When the voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, that last phrase referred to the delight of God in the suffering servant of Isaiah 42. The Son of God must take the pathway of the suffering servant. And the devil here offers a detour to allegedly arrive at the same destination. The shortcut the devil offers is idolatry. He doesn't even sugarcoat it or attempt to mask what he's up to. Notice Jesus' response here is also more direct. The devil has raised the issue of the Messiah's authority, and Jesus here exercises that authority. He has endured the devil's attacks as long as he will. The devil's final assault was more direct, more bold, and so Jesus' final response doesn't pull any punches. The devil has been attempting to boss Jesus around this whole time. Turn these stones into bread, jump off the temple, bow down to me. Well, Jesus now exercises his authority and commands the devil, be gone, Satan. He also calls him by his more well-known name, Satan, which means adversary, enemy, opponent, villain. Jesus doesn't question whether or not the devil has the right to offer these kingdoms. Instead, Jesus hones in on the absolute evil of even the suggestion that God's Son could worship anyone else but God alone. And Jesus quotes Scripture once more. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. No compromise, no shifting of allegiance. Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. Yahweh alone has the right to command human beings to worship Him. And once more, Jesus stands where the nation of Israel stood in the wilderness where they built and worshipped a golden calf, Jesus refuses to worship anyone or anything but Yahweh alone. Jesus' universal authority will be highlighted on another high mountain at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus will receive His full authority from His Father after following the pathway of the suffering servant all the way. And then He will exercise His authority by sending out His disciples to gather followers from all the kingdoms of the world in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not by the devil, 
but by his Father. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the final round ends with Jesus' command, exercising his authority over the devil. But it's Matthew's narrative comment in verse 11 that truly concludes the story and shows how Jesus is victorious over the devil. Matthew elegantly describes this victory in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is my favorite part of the story. Jesus commanded the devil to leave, and he left. No arguments, no discussion, no fanfare. He's just gone. And that reminds us that Jesus could have done that at any point. He could have done it at the very beginning of this conversation. He didn't have to endure these attacks from Satan. He could have dismissed the devil when he first pointed out the stones that could satisfy Jesus' hunger. Why didn't he? We have to see this as Jesus' first great victory over the devil. And he purposely fights this battle as a man, consciously representing and embodying the nation of Israel, fulfilling their national sonship in himself. But more broadly, Jesus is our champion. He fights the great enemy in our place, but he doesn't fight as some super soldier. And he doesn't even fight as God, even though he is God. He comes to the arena physically weak. He comes to the arena alone with no one to cheer him on. And he even comes to the arena which is as far from home-filled advantage as you could imagine, a desolate wilderness. Moreover, he comes at a time when every son of God before him has failed. Adam and Eve wrangled with this same serpent, and we can even see the serpent using some of the same old tactics than that first battle long ago, as he does here. Adam and Eve failed. And they failed in a lush garden. They failed when they were well supplied. They failed even though they had each other. Adam had the same authority Jesus had. Adam should have and could have addressed the serpent and said, Get out! The serpent would have had to obey. But you know the story. You know he didn't. The nation of Israel likewise faced the very same kind of temptations in the wilderness. Their response to hunger was to gripe and complain and try to hoard what they did have. Their response to an apparent lack of water was to test the Lord, to test their father by demanding water from Moses. And in the temporary absence of Moses, they decided they ought to make some physical, tangible, shiny metal gods to worship and to give credit for delivering them from Egypt. Finally, a Son of God has come who can stand the test. Jesus shows us what resisting temptation must look like. And the strategy is simple. Trust what God says in Scripture, and obey what God says in Scripture. God is faithful to His Word. To accent 
that very point. We see at the end of verse 11 that angels came and ministered to Jesus, provided for his needs. The devil wanted Jesus to force God's hand to send angels as promised in Psalm 91. Jesus trusted God to send angels at the right time. And here they are. As one writer concludes, ironically, the one who refused to turn stones into bread is now given food. The one who refused to throw himself off the temple to get angelic help is now served by angels. The one who refused to take a shortcut to the kingdom will now begin to announce the coming of the kingdom in his preaching ministry. We'll see that next Sunday. Jesus wins this first bout with the devil. More conflict will come during Jesus' ministry, but the climactic and decisive battle will be fought on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. Satan tried using Jesus' greatest weapon, Scripture, against him, but failed to wield it effectively. Jesus will take Satan's greatest weapon, death, and use it to deal the death blow to the devil. As the author to the Hebrews says, Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. It's only as God's Son serves God by suffering in place of His people that Jesus can truly live out the identity and mission of the Son of God. He will not be deterred from the way of suffering laid out by His Father. He will only do what is pleasing to His Father. Now, as we read this story and we see it here, I don't think Matthew is just telling us a neat story about how Jesus beat the devil one time. That would be good enough. But surely we do need to see Jesus as a model here for how we must face temptation in our own lives. God's Son faced temptation. And you and I, as God's adopted sons, will face temptation in this life. The strategy we must use is the same as the strategy that Jesus used. Trust and obey. If Jesus, the Son of God, resists temptation by trusting what God has said in Scripture and obeying what God has said in Scripture, then all of God's sons must resist temptation in the same way. In this story, Jesus defeats the devil in our place. But he also teaches us how to stand against the devil and all sources of temptation in our own lives. Now, personally, I believe that between 98 and 100% of the temptation that you and I face probably does not come from the devil or his demonic agents. They've got bigger evil things to occupy themselves with. The one place in the Bible that directly discusses the nature of temptation is James 1, 13 to 15. And James suggests that most temptations come from inside us, not the devil. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Of course, that wasn't the case for Jesus. His experience of temptation could not come from inside because his desires were always God-pleasing desires. Instead, he faced a far more powerful, more persuasive enemy and came out unstained and victorious. 
However, his strategy against temptations coming from the devil himself will be the successful strategy that we must follow to gain victory over all forms of temptation that we face, including and especially those that come from within. Paul also spoke briefly about temptation, reflecting on Israel's wilderness experience, interestingly enough, in the famous and comforting words of 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. We often think of the way of escape as a circumstantial exit, something that we need to discern in our situation so that we can avoid giving in to the temptation. But what if the way of escape refers instead to the Scriptures? In every case of temptation, whether from the devil or his agents or more often from inside us, ready at hand, is what God has said to us in the Scriptures. Trusting what God has said in the Scriptures, applied appropriately to our situation, and obeying what God has said in the Scriptures, enables us to endure temptation and escape from sin. At the end of the day, Jesus teaches us how to read our Bibles. He teaches us how to trust what God has said in the Bible. And he teaches us how to obey what God has said in the Bible. We must be better exegetes than Satan. We must learn to see the whole Bible as a unified message from God. We must learn to see the interconnectivity of the Scriptures. We must learn to hold the tensions of the Bible in place, refusing to swing to extremes, abandoning one truth for the sake of another, and refusing to see contradictions. Jesus saw the Bible as an organic unity, and he read all of it together. This is the very source of our life. A verse a day won't keep the, Bible, the devil away, but a life spent in the Bible, drawing daily nourishment from all parts of it, will keep us living as faithful sons of our faithful Father. And that's really the goal that we should be focusing on. We want to live as faithful sons of our faithful Father. And from within us, and from outside of us, from the culture around us, from the devil and his spiritual agents all around us, there are all of these things trying to trip us up and lead us to be unfaithful. Even within us, there remains this bent toward abandoning faithfulness to our Father. How will we stand How will we continue? This is the way. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Him, trust Him today. See His sacrificial death on the cross as paying for your failures to resist temptation. See His victorious resurrection from the dead as conquering all that ails you and all that you fear. Jesus fully human, fully divine, all man, all God, all at once provides eternal life. Forgiveness of sin, power for joyful living to any and all who will trust Him.
We've been talking about trusting and obeying, and they do go hand in hand. I'd like to invite the music team to come up here. We're going to close with that song one more time just to bore it into our souls. Trusting Jesus is the foundation for the hope of obedience. Trust Jesus to rescue you, to save you, and He will empower you to obey Him. Jesus understood who He is from the Bible. We must understand who we are from the Bible. Jesus then learned what it meant to be who He was, to live as the Son of God in all of its contours from the Bible. You and I must learn what it means to be who we are, adopted sons of God from the Bible. As we read our Bibles, the only proper posture is to trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's what the old hymn says. That's what we're going to sing. We can change the words ever so slightly or add this in. It's not in there originally. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to resist all temptation than to trust and obey. Sing together.